You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Well, welcome back to uh, Healthcare Insight on America's Web Radio. We've had tremendous success over the last several months in talking about healthcare reform. Many of you have now been picking up on the uh, presentations, listening to it on America's Web Radio, listening to it on podcasts. We appreciate the input and the questions and the comments that we've gotten feedback on. Initially, we spent about eight or nine weeks talking about healthcare reform, uh, specifically on uh, repair and replacement, um, repeal of Obamacare, and what a free market solution might look like. And we're going to continue to touch on that as we go through this new 2020 political year, where I believe healthcare is going to be the major issue in the upcoming presidential election and congressional elections. Right now, I want to continue with the series that's related to that, and that is what I call understanding healthcare consumerism. Because healthcare consumerism is really at the core of whatever system we ultimately put in, structurally at the federal level or even at state level. It really ought to be the core of what is the replacement of Obamacare. We just can't replace Obamacare with a new plan design or offering up new insurance options that really don't create a healthcare consumerism environment where consumers of healthcare are engaged and encouraged to change their behaviors, to follow their doctor's orders, to be rewarded and incentivized for good healthcare care behaviors to be reinforced, whether it's financial incentives or improvement in healthcare options, whatever it is, We are typically American after all. We want to be rewarded and incentivized for doing the right things. So far on healthcare consumerism, we've been laying the foundation for benefit managers, for HR executives, for insurance companies, for anybody to really have an understanding of how to move forward with healthcare consumerism. There's one more test that we alluded to Last week, one more test that I'll call readiness for healthcare consumerism. You know, there's an economist that I greatly appreciate and learned a lot from. That economist is a lady named Wendy Welsh. She's a PhD economist, and she has done some remarkable work in the area of human capital and healthcare. While at an organization called HCMC Group, she developed a scale that measures the level of recognition of human capital within an organization. The scale can also be used to determine if implementing healthcare consumerism will likely be successful. In each of four areas, there are numerous related corporate programs that can show whether your existing corporate environment is compatible with implementing healthcare consumerism. Because while you may think healthcare consumerism as a concept is really good and valuable, if your organization is not ready to implement those concepts, you're going to establish a benefit design, a reward incentive system, but it's not going to have the kind of impact that you are really looking for. I always like to say that if the first time 
the organization expects its employees to act like adults, to make decisions that affect their own lives, to change their behaviors. The first time you're asking them to do that is healthcare. You're probably not going to get the results that you're looking for. So let's look at the very specifics of this corporate readiness test for healthcare consumerism. And anybody out there listening, I encourage you to get a pencil and paper and write this down. I'll give you some areas that you can go to to get copies of this when we finish. Of course, you can always go to America's Web Radio and re-listen to this broadcast or go to your favorite podcast. And I've also been listing a lot of this on LinkedIn. So you can go to LinkedIn and look for me, Ron Bachman, on LinkedIn, and some of this information will be available that you can actually download and print out. So here's the test. We're going to award a point for each yes answer. If the answer applies to a majority of your employees, now the maximum score is 20. Now you can make up your own readiness test after I go through this in detail. I'm going to list each of the questions and you can write them down and you can create your own if you want or add additional ones. Each of these four areas is going to have five questions. So there's a total of five points in each of four areas. The first area is what I call shared rewards. First question, are employees eligible for performance bonuses? If the majority of your employees are eligible for performance bonuses, not just their salary, but bonuses, whether it's monthly, quarterly, or annual bonuses, give yourself one point. If employees are eligible for a bonus, do they know exactly how the bonuses are determined? Or do they know that at least part of their bonus is based on individual performance? So it's not a group performance bonus that is based on their individual performances and they know how it's determined. There's either a list of items that they've got to check off or there's some sort of a formula that they will know exactly how their bonuses are determined. So it's not who's the employee of the month kind of, you know, good favor with the boss kind of a bonus. It's actually based on their performance. So if these conditions are met, Give yourself another point. The third question in this segment on shared rewards is, is it possible to earn bonus or profit sharing that is greater than 10% of total salary? If all that is greater than 10% of total salary, you get another point. So while you may have said there are bonuses that you got points for in the first two questions, is it really significant to actually get somebody's attention? so that they'll actually change the behaviors, that they'll drive towards the goal that you set for them as employee of the organization. The fourth area is can employees cash in unused sick leave or paid time off for extra pay? If they can, then give yourself another point. Now, what's the difference between unused sick leave or paid time off? Well, the whole point here is to let the employee make choices. 
Let them decide about getting paid or taking the sick leave. Let them make those choices themselves. So you don't say, well, you got to take sick leave. You got to be off when they really have and want to do their job. So give yourself another point if employees can cash in unused sick leave or paid time off. And the fifth and final question in this segment on shared rewards is if you do an employee survey of your organization and the survey result is strongly agree with this question, at my company, the people who succeed are those who earn it through their achievement. If you do that survey and employees come back with a strongly agree result, give yourself another point. Now, these five questions are not easy for any organization to recognize, but you're going to see the real importance of asking these types of questions so that you can get into shared rewards as an organization. Because if the first time you try to get into shared rewards and incentives in healthcare and you haven't been doing it across your organization, you're just not going to get the kind of results that you really want in your healthcare program. So you might need to step back and make some changes within your organization, within other types of benefits that you have other than healthcare, in order to make any new healthcare program that's healthcare consumerism oriented or targeted valuable within your organization, effective within your organization. Now let's go to the second of four major categories. That's what I call shared responsibility. And again, there's going to be five points in this area. First question, do your employees have paid time off bank instead of sick leave? Now, the importance of this is that if somebody has some family issue, their child has a school play during the day, that they have a recital of some type, and the employee really wants to be there and support and be a part of that child's experience. Do you force them to call in sick or do they have a paid time off bank that they can take at their own discretion when they really need it? Because what happens if you only have sick leave within your organization? Don't you think and know that that employee is going to call in sick so they can go see their child's recital? Of course they will. Anybody who's been in that kind of environment has done that. So again, give yourself a point if, in fact, you have a paid time off bank instead of sick leave. Second area, are employees compensated less than 100% pay during their short-term disability? If they are compensated less than 100%, give yourself a point. And I think the thrust here is that if employees are getting paid 100% of their pay, during any short-term disability, which may be 13, 26, even up to 52 weeks is considered short-term, then they're not going to be encouraged to come back. You're kind of taking away their incentive to work, to be productive. Third question in this area of shared responsibility. Do most employees have a health plan out-of-pocket maximum of let's just say some amount, $3,000 or higher. Maybe you want to change that as time goes on, the 4000 or 5000 whatever is appropriate for your organization and the history and culture you have been. 
But the point is, there has to be some shared responsibility that the employee has some expense if they have a health care issue. Now, you don't want to be so burdensome that they're going to be bankrupt, they can't pay it, that you're, you know, maybe you change this based upon your internal salary structure. But employees have to have some shared responsibility for themselves getting healthy, staying healthy, minimizing their health care costs. So give your point, if most of your employees have a health care out-of-pocket maximum of $3,000 or higher, out-of-pocket would be both deductible and coinsurance. Four, do most employees have a health plan deductible of more than, say, $1,500? Again, fill in the number that's appropriate for your organization. But give yourself a point. Again, shared responsibility, they have some cost. And five in this section, if you have a survey again and the result is agree with this question, I protect my health because it is essential to having a successful career. If people start to understand that and they agree with that, give yourself another point. Well, these are two of the four areas of corporate readiness tests. We're up against the hard breaks. So I want to take a break right now, go to commercial, and we'll come back and we'll finish up the last two areas, and then we'll talk about the importance and the next steps after your organization has taken this corporate readiness test. So hang with us. We'll be back just in a second on America's Web Radio. Welcome back. I'm Ron Bachman on America's Web Radio, and you're listening to Healthcare Insight. We're talking about today corporate readiness for healthcare consumerism. We've talked about what healthcare consumerism is. It's a program of engaging your employees with financial and information on health and healthcare issues to help them make better choices on their own health and healthcare, to make them realize how important their health is to their overall value, to their family, to their community, and to their employer. We're talking about a readiness test that includes five different areas. Shared rewards, shared responsibility. Now we're going to talk about the last two areas of this test. And each area of the test has five questions. If you're a benefit manager out there listening or a human resource, make up your own questions. There could be something differences within your organization. So these are just really good examples that should meet the needs for at least 80% of companies listening to this and wanting to buy into this approach. So the first two areas we just talked about were shared rewards and shared responsibility. The third area I want to talk about is asset growth. And here are the five questions to test your own organization as to whether you're really ready to engage your employees on their health care under the concepts of health care consumerism. Asset growth. First question. Do you have a 401k plan available to at least 3% with at least 3% corporate match? Because you have a 401k with at least a 3% corporate match with their 401k plan. That gives employees an incentive to act like adults and to get involved and recognize that they 
can have a benefit that's a real asset to themselves and their family, their 401k plans. Most companies have a 401k plan these days as as opposed to a defined benefit plan. It's a defined contribution plan in the retirement uh, uh, world language. So if you do have a match of at least 3% from the corporate side, give yourself a point. The second area, do you have an HSA or a health savings account or a health reimbursement arrangement, an HRA, with an annual company deposit of $2,000 or more? So you putting that kind of money into an account for employees to utilize and covering some of their costs of health care, their cost sharing, their deductibles, their co-pays. Are you putting that kind of money into an account for them? If you are, give yourself a point. Third question. Do you have a tuition reimbursement program for education? If you do, give yourself a point. Education is a real way employees can see that their personal asset is growing. And they need to know that you're supporting it as an organization. The fourth question, is prevention and wellness covered at 100%? Well, most companies would get a point on that these days if they're following Obamacare, because Obamacare really requires prevention and wellness to be covered at 100% before deductible and co-insurance is in place. Whether you are post-Obamacare, whether you are... Uh, self-insured and you've managed to minimize your prevention and wellness or eliminate it for some reason, uh, you really need to think about how important it is that you include prevention and wellness and cover it 100%. If you do, give yourself a point. The fifth one is another survey question that we had in the first two uh, parts of this test. And these survey results should be very good to excellent. And the question is, how would you rate your company's emphasis on skill training? How would each employee rate the company's emphasis on skill training? That shows that the company is really trying to improve its asset, its employee capital, and is helping employees understand and recognize that they have human capital that needs to be expanded, improved. Skill training. People need to be able to have some new skills, some advanced skills as your company changes in this technology environment. How artificial intelligence is going to change the types of skills that your organization has that these people can fit into that future successfully, grow themselves professionally. So if your company gets survey results back from the broad Spans of employees that it's very good or excellent in how they would rate the company's emphasis on skill training, whether it's internal training, external training, mentoring programs, lunchtime programs, video programs, whatever you have available. Do people really feel that there's some real skill training going on? Give yourself another point. The fourth area. Is ownership. And there, again, there are five points available in this section. First question Do you offer a consumer driven healthcare or healthcare consumerism plan 
So now this brings in your employee benefit program, your health insurance program. Do you really offer a consumer-driven or a healthcare consumerism plan? Give yourself a point. And we've described what those plans look like. They're either an account-based plan or there's some plan that provides rewards and incentives and gives employees a stake in the game, not just in selecting the plan at time of enrollment, but throughout the year. Does that benefit plan change? Are rewards, incentives, and reinforcements available to get people to change their behaviors, to be better consumers of health care, to get the services that they need? Not just that they're going to get something because somebody else is paying for it as a third party. Second question, do employees have access to support for personal financial decisions? In other words, do you have some financial incentive programs? Do you have some programs that help them with their own personal finances? Do you have legal support? Do you have a number of ways to help the person who's getting paid to put themselves in a good financial position, to take care of themselves and their family, with whether it's support and understanding the stock market, bond market, to be able to make personal investments appropriately, to learn about the importance of savings, whether that's just in a bank account or to accumulate money in their HSAs or their FSAs, but it's support for personal financial decisions. Give yourself another point. Do employees have access to decision support for health and health care decisions? Those are you giving them the kind of support they need to better understand their choices in health and health care? whether it's the right doctors, centers of excellence, support for preventive care. If somebody in your family has cancer, where are the best cancer support centers? Do they understand the need for various treatments? What are their options? How do they talk to their doctor? How do they better change their diet, their exercise habits, whatever it is, do employees have access to those kinds of support systems to help them with their health and health care decisions? If so, you get another point. Fourth question, are employees encouraged to make independent decisions at work? In other words, are they allowed to make choices, whether it's when a, an assembly line needs to be stopped because they see a problem? Are they allowed to make independent decisions on their own work, when they should go into a certain area, when they need to stop and do some research, when they need to make a change in the product, when they need to connect the sales force, whether the sales force needs to spend some time with the production crew so that they better understand what's really being done and how they might sell it better. There's all sorts of interactions and personal decision times that could be important in an organization. Or are they just robots kind of making, stamping out the product that you want? And they're not really encouraged to make independent decisions. In the fifth area, again, a survey type question. Results should come back that people would agree with this statement. My company asks for input about what benefits are important to workers. If your company really isn't asking for input to frontline people who are actually doing the job so that that job can be done better, the task can be changed, the tools to do that job can be better designed 
can be better trained on how to work alternatives. If the company doesn't ask for that input, all you're doing is telling employees, here's what you have to do. There's a lot of rules and regulations and bureaucracy. That doesn't really help an organization to keep up with the times and make changes that are necessary. Those people on the front line know the things that need to get done, but if they are fearful of providing that input, or they believe that input is ignored, or that there'll be some repercussions because they'll point out a flaw in the system, then you'll never get that kind of improvement. But if you do, and a survey comes back and people recognize that the company is asking for input about what benefits are important to workers. And what benefits are important to workers might be the type of health care programs that they need, what kind of non-health care programs that they need. The benefits might be legal, dental, vision, daycare services, better lunchtime programs, better time off, better 401k plans, whatever it is, it goes across the board asking for input on their work and on their benefits. If you're doing that, give yourself a point. So now, on a scale of 1 to 20, if the company scored a 1 to 7, it may not be ready for healthcare consumerism. Other changes within the organization may be needed before or concurrent with implementing healthcare consumerism. If the company's score was 8 to 13, the organization has already taken some important steps to support the engagement of employees and will likely find immediate but moderate health plan cost savings. You're not going to optimize, but you'll get some good effects. If the company scored between 14 and 20 on this test, it is more than ready and will find it is already compatible with a culture of health and respective employees, and it will likely experience optimal results from a well-designed program of healthcare consumerism. So let's take another break. We'll come back for the third segment of this hour. We want to talk about what all this means and how it relates to what I call human capital, how people are really valued within an organization. So let's take another quick break, and we'll be right back in a minute on America's Web Radio, and you're listening to Healthcare Insight. See you in just a minute. Welcome back to America's Web Radio, and you're listening to Healthcare Insight. We've just gone over a number of things that would help any company establish a healthcare consumerism program and determine whether or not they're really ready for healthcare consumerism. We've been through four major segments of determining whether or not your organization is really ready for healthcare consumerism. Have you engaged people? in shared rewards. You have programs that recognize the shared responsibility of both the company and the employee to do the right things. Have you established organizational programs and benefits at various stages within your organization that encourage and promote the concept and the realization of asset growth, both for the individual and for the company? 
And the fourth area is a really established programs that encourage ownership for employees to make their own decisions, to make have ownership in those decisions to their own benefit, not just to the benefit of the company, but to their own benefit, of their own health and health care. So if your company is really ready, and you've determined that readiness test is there, let's talk about what you're really affecting, and that is human capital. Human capital and equipment capital are very different. Unlike machines, employees bring understanding, compassion, mentoring, and flexibility to the job, among many other qualities. You can't replace people in every case by robots and computers. Artificial intelligence that's in the years ahead are going to be trying to do that in many areas, and they'll do it successfully. But I guarantee you there will be times when the human capital is replaced by equipment capital. It will be disastrous to organizations that don't do it right and don't do it in the right place. Human capital includes intelligence, problem-solving, creativity, teaming, and an entrepreneurial spirit. That is, taking ownership as if the organization is yours within an organization. So instead of entrepreneurial, the word I like to use is intrapreneurial. That is why people or human capital is the most important asset of any business. Traditional human capital is purely financial. That's the way we've always looked at human capital. It is an economic description of an employee's worth or value to a company in sort of stark numbers. It is generally management's view of the value of its hired staff. The Health and Human Capital Foundation defines human capital as a function of three major assets offered by each individual. The skill, that is the education and experiences that they bring to the job. Motivation, that is their attitudes and values. And three, their health physical, and mental capacity. The impact of human capital, health, and healthcare connects an organizational productivity and personal growth. Benefit managers need to better understand this relationship to design and offer benefits that maximize their organizational investment in health and healthcare. And that's really what an organization needs to focus on. Health and health care benefits are an investment in the organization to support, create, attract, to build on their human capital. If an individual if individuals cannot maintain their health, their economic value to an organization declines. If organizations do not assist and support the health of their employees and family members. They will not receive the optimum productive value from their human capital. It's really important for an organization to support the health and health care needs 
of employees and the family members. Because if a family member's got a major problem, the employee's going to be distracted in their work during the day on what that problem and issue is. And recognize that health and mental health go together here. Because if an employee is depressed, stressed, or anxious about themselves or their family members, they're not going to be very supportive. But I can guarantee you, I can guarantee 100% that if your organization does not have a good stress management program in place to help employees and family members, that those employees and family members are going to have their own stress management program, which may not be beneficial to the bottom line and experience of your benefit program. Employees and or family members will engage in comfort foods. They'll get overweight. They'll have illnesses from that. They'll get engaged in drugs and alcohol and other comfort items that are easily accessed in the general public today. And that's likely to create a lot of health care issues and a lot of productivity issues that negatively affect the employees and the family members. Many employees, and you have to recognize this, many employees do not make the connection between maintaining their health and their compensation, their salary, their benefits, their bonuses. They don't make that connection that if they're healthy and productive and are good workers, that they're going to get higher compensation. They'll get the job promotion. They'll get that new client. They'll get that new task to work on a committee. And all that can ultimately affect their compensation short-term or long-term. But employees don't necessarily make that connection between their health and their compensation. Many employers do not connect the impact of the overall work environment to personal responsibility, lifestyle choices, compliance with treatments, and healthy activities of plan members. That connection is really critical and important, but it's overlooked by employers. So those of you out there who are employers, benefit managers, HR executives, C-suite members, you need to really realize that the overall work environment has an impact on your health care needs and issues, the cost of your health care program, the productivity costs of your organization. If personal responsibility is not a part of the other aspects of your employee's workplace, then expecting optimal engagement by employees in their health care is just not realistic. You know, there's a speaker that I heard a while back. His name is Bob Chapman. And he likes to talk about truly human leadership. Now, Bob Chapman is CEO of Barry Weimiller Companies. And he's a strong proponent of truly human leadership. It is the degree to which management treats its employees as valued, intelligent, Adults. He defines the impact of a truly human leadership as sending staff home at the end of the day safe, healthy, and fulfilled. How many of your organizations, of those listening today, 
can truthfully say that at the end of the day, your employees go home feeling safe, healthy, and fulfilled. The goal is to provide well-being, a concept much broader than wellness. Well-being. Organizations that treat employees with respect and dignity in areas other than health benefits will have lower health care costs. Engaging each individual's intellect and creativity, as well as personally knowing each and every employee, must be a part of the overall business culture. Here's a question you might want to ask your department or division managers. Does each manager know the names of the spouse and children of each person under their direction? Because if they don't, they don't really know the individuals. They just know them as employees, punching out widgets each day, as opposed to knowing them as people and what their skills and creativity might mean to an organization that actually minds that area and asks for input. This is not a white-collar or blue-collar distinction. This is not a profit versus non-profit distinction. Employees of any skill or education level can be participants in an idea generation product and service improvements, and cost-effective changes. Health benefit plans are only a part of the overall environment of engaging employees and supporting good health and health care decisions both on and off the job site. Truly human leadership engages employees within and outside of the health plan. Within the health plan, it may be health savings accounts, and other aspects of healthcare consumerism. It may mean helping employees with financial skills, family issues, or child care. Outside the health plan, it includes employees acting and being treated as adults. It's time to recognize that health and healthcare costs do not stand alone within an organization. Health plan costs cannot be viewed as a single budgetary line item. We now know that the cost of health care is not only a function of the individual's health, but the overall culture of an organization. Most employees know that healthy populations are more productive. Healthy employees have fewer sick days, increased productivity, improved presenteeism, fewer disabilities, and lower health costs. To create healthy workers, benefit managers, attended to change health plans, products, and services to better engage employees in health plan selection, treatment alternatives, care options, and lifestyle choices. That's the way it should happen. The development of one's own personal human capital creates income opportunities and long-term financial growth for individuals, so they have that vision of upward mobility. Without health, all other aspects of personal human capital are quickly diminished. Individual health and a healthy workplace is the link between personal career growth and an organization's productivity interests. Let's take a quick break again, and we'll come back and talk about the potential savings and a case study that kind of proves the point. So we'll be right back. You're on America's Web Radio. Want to give your family, our loved one, the perfect gift? 
then go online and check out the tornadobodydryer.com. I love mine and the warm heat air massage it gives me after my shower. The Tornado Body Dryer is super. You'll love it, and you'll love having one in your shop. Welcome back to America's Web Radio. You're listening to Healthcare Insight. I'm Ron Bachman, and we've been talking about understanding healthcare consumerism, how a company can decide whether they're ready to implement the concepts of healthcare consumerism, and then what those concepts are and how to actually create and discover, identify your basic principles, your vision for your organization, the strategies that you're willing to use, and then finally, are you really ready for healthcare consumerism? We've given very specific examples, very specific tests, very specific questions on how we can implement what I think is going to be the core of healthcare going forward and should be the core of any national program of health reform that's implemented. We cannot just vote in an Obamacare replacement that just gives us a few more options, allows catastrophic coverage, allows for choices of individuals, all of which are great all of which I support. But if those programs aren't implemented by the industry or encouraged by legislation and regulation to include the concepts of healthcare consumerism that can be uniquely designed for each company to play on the strengths and minimize the weaknesses of any organization's human capital, their employees, and to provide a benefit program that fits into that overall culture. And I've given ideas on how to improve that culture and that you really can't just start with healthcare. It has to be a broader concept within your organization. So we've laid out very detailed questions and tests to determine healthcare consumerism, whether your organization is ready for it. So in this final segment for this hour, I'd like to talk about a couple of case studies that kind of prove the point. Because as an actuary, I was always trained that we can develop pricing models based upon age and sex and industry and plan design, deductibles and cost sharing. And I've built many models, many models for pricing out benefits that were then offered up to the public based upon traditional actuarial principles. But Wendy Lynch, that economist I mentioned earlier, really opened my eyes to something that economists can bring into this discussion that is beyond what I learned in any actuarial program. So let's talk about the potential savings of improving this human capital. So Wendy took and based on a large database of employer information, their healthcare costs, their corporate culture profiles, and more. The Health and Human Capital Foundation put together an analytical composite of two employers. And with all that data that they had on the two employers, they analyzed 
the data to compare apples to apples to show how companies with identical characteristics could have dramatically different healthcare costs. Now, when I first heard this, I'm like, I understand the concept, but how can I have dramatically different costs if I normalize all the other factors that are traditional actuarial factors? If I make them the same, if I make adjustments within two big databases to equalize companies in every actuarial aspect, how can they actually have dramatically different healthcare costs rather than random fluctuations? Well, in the study of healthcare costs that were normalized to show financial results given identical age mix, the same gender profile, equal work tenure, the same number and types of diagnoses, equal comorbidities, and the same region of the country. Now, that's not an easy thing to do, but I think Wendy, as a PhD economist, was able to very effectively do that. In other words, take two large groups, if you will, that she's organized from all this data, so that is they are statistically significant, and she's equalized those two groups in every aspect you can think of. So let's look at company number one and then company two. Company one had 84% higher member health care costs than did company two. 84% higher. As an actuary, I found that astounding. It was really eye-opening. Surprisingly, the reason is not directly related to health care. The difference is how human capital is engaged throughout the organization. And that's not really a typical actuarial function. So I learned a lot here. Few corporations have taken the time to develop inclusive ways to engage employees. Surveys and studies have shown that if the first time you expect your employees to act like adults is with their health care benefits, you'll probably fail in your attempt to get them engaged. A survey supported by the Institute of Health and Productivity Management found that 62% of American businesses and nearly 85% of employees say the workplace must play a leadership role in creating a healthier workforce and helping to curb rising health care costs. In their own self-interest, employees want and need employees to take an active role in creating a healthy workplace. So if there's an 84% difference when you equalize all those cost factors that are traditionally considered as to why your company has a certain level of health care expenses, if there's an 84% difference when I normalize all the factors, there has to be something else involved. That's not an insignificant number. That says that company one has almost double the cost of company two. There's got to be a reason for that. And I think Wendy has tapped into that with analyzing all the data that it has to do with the corporate environment. So that is maybe one of the strongest arguments, the strongest study that I've seen 
to encourage corporate involvement in improving its health and human capital by engaging employees in a number of different ways to help them both on and off the job to expand their horizon and the need for understanding their own personal human capital. And it's all about what Bob Chapman talked about. If you're in the C-suite, it's about creating truly human leadership, not just leadership of your organization and how effective you can do widgets or how fast you can do it or how you can cut costs by shipping employees and work overseas. It's establishing a truly human leadership that you recognize the value of your employees and what they can actually bring to the table, that untapped value of your human capital. Just don't say as a CEO that that's your most important asset, your human capital, when in fact you really aren't living that belief or you would do things very different. You do things very much like what Bob Chapman at Barry Weimiller Companies is doing, and that is being a strong proponent of being sure that when your staff leaves at the end of the day, they feel safe, healthy, and fulfilled. Now, I want to go on to another example of how you need to think about the human aspect of your employees and your staff. That it's not just about numbers. It's about being a good steward, a good shepherd of your employees and their family members. Let me get very personal with the audience listening in here. I want to tell you another story, another case study about human capital and in some ways the tragic loss of human capital from people not recognizing their own value, of people not taking care of themselves, and loss to families, to mothers and fathers, and to employers. This is a case study, and I want to recognize up front that as an actuary and a mathematician, I was trained in numbers and actuarial science. We've talked about a lot of numbers and how it impacts an organization and human capital. And many of you out there listening may also be analysts, doctors, lawyers, CEOs, economists, or researchers. Let's throw away those numbers for a moment and look at the lives of real people. Let me tell you about a young man, age 30, who suffered multiple inherited physical problems, a blood disorder, clotting concerns, pulmonary hypertension, and other unfathomable resources of pain and suffering. Combined with depression and the stigma of an emotional disorder, this young man was frequently non-compliant with care and treatment. Unlike other physical illnesses, depression typically causes a patient to avoid care. He pushed away the very help that was needed. He pushed away family support and friends that cared. No young, strapping, six-foot-five, 260-pound young man wants his forehead stamped with the stigma of mental illness. He was not going to be classified as crazy, see a shrink, or go to a nuthouse for care. No, 
He was a high school basketball star with an athletic promise most boys just dream about. In his mind, he didn't need care. He was who he was. He didn't accept or understand chemical imbalances. In his mind, real men are strong enough. In 2005, the years of depression and physical decline took its toll. The death certificate read pulmonary hypertension. But I can tell you the real cause was stigma and major depression that prevented this young adult from seeking or accepting the medical and life-saving care that he needed. Chris Golden was my stepson. His mother and I buried Chris on May 5th, 2005. So look at all the ROI numbers, but never forget. This is not about numbers. It's about people and saving lives. It's about the Chris Goldens of the world. So just remember as you're looking at those bottom line profit and loss numbers, that your health care program, your benefit support programs, your decision support programs can all have a dramatic impact on families throughout your organization, not just those employees, but about the employees' families. That's who you ought to be thinking about, your human capital throughout your organization. I hope that I presented some numbers today and also touched on some feelings about why change is needed. We need corporate leaders in this world that actually can understand and make changes in their healthcare programs and in people's lives. And I think it starts with the idea of healthcare consumerism that is engaging people in health and healthcare and making them recognize and realize and reinforce the thought of their own human capital. Well, we're going to continue this program for the next several weeks of how to design and create a healthcare consumerism program. And so I think it's an appropriate title to talk about understanding healthcare consumerism, creating the possible. We'll see you next week. This is Ron Bachman signing off from America's Web Radio. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.